You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. If you traveled to the land of Israel and ended up in Jerusalem and made your way to western Jerusalem, you would see this oddly shaped building. This is one part of the Israeli Museum. Maybe some of you have been there. I'm jealous. I would love to go there. And the Israeli Museum contains art and archaeological artifacts. Israel considers this museum one of its national treasures, and it has been referred to as, quote, the crown jewel of this country's cultural heritage. And this particular building in the Israeli Museum is a a huge reason why this museum is a crown jewel. This building houses a portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls. On the inside, there are a number of scrolls displayed. I won't tell you the full story at this time. We'll have to save that for another occasion. But in 1947, a Bedouin shepherd boy was wandering, trying to find sheep in the wilderness area, threw a rock up into a cave to see if any sheep would be in there. And instead of hearing blah, he heard crash. And it was pottery breaking. He went up in there and found several scrolls, and that launched an investigation. And over time, around 15,000 fragments of scrolls were discovered, of manuscripts were discovered, dating back to between 200 B.C. and 100 A.D. It's the time of Jesus, uh, 2,000 years ago. And the building, as you can see on the inside here, the building on the, ex- on the outside, the, ex- side, <laughs> the exterior of the building, the outside, was designed to look like the clay pots the scrolls were found in. Pretty incredible. Well, the Israeli Museum, we could say, is the crown jewel of Israeli culture. And the crown jewel of this museum is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, houses a greater treasure. These verses proclaim to us that Jesus is the crown jewel of the universe. His value is priceless. His brilliance is radiant, and his glory is incomparable. And last week, we looked at verses 15 through 17, the first half of this text, and these verses list three truths that prove that Jesus is the crown jewel of all creation. Jesus first is truly God in verse 15, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He displays the invisible God. He occupies the position of priority over all things. The word firstborn, we noted, doesn't mean born first in this context. It means the one who has the rights and privileges of firstborn. Jesus then is superior to everything. And his position as God demands that we worship him with devotion, with reverence, with awe, as we seek to be imitated or as we seek to imitate him and be conformed to him. Second, in verse 16, we see that Jesus is the creator of everyone and everything. Everything that you see around you, all the things you can't see, if you look up and look around, everything was created by God, by Jesus in particular. He is superior, and he made it all. And this is wonderful news because it gives us purpose in life. We don't have to wonder what our lives are supposed to be used for or spent living for. We simply seek to bring Jesus glory. We live for Jesus' advantage. And then third, Jesus continues to uphold the creation as its sustainer. There was an old teaching that was popular around the founding of the American Revolution called deism. It was the belief that Jesus created the worlds and then walked away from it. And everything that happens is just taking place. 
Well, this verse shows us that not only did Jesus create the worlds, he continues to sustain it. He continues to be active. He is sovereign over it. And because he holds everything, you can depend on him for every need you have. He will never fail you. Jesus is a priceless treasure, a jewel without peer or rival. And a few moments ago, I talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and and those scrolls are just a small illustration of the great value of a treasure. Now, I've had the privilege of seeing these Dead Sea Scrolls on two occasions, and we all have to get really honest at this moment, because we all have a layer of geek in us, okay? Whether you want to admit it or not, you have it, okay? You find the right topic, you go a little geeky on it, and this one hits my geek quotient, and it explodes, okay? The first time that I saw them, uh, Kate, we weren't married yet, we were dating. We saw them together. She took me there. I was visiting uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was so giddy about it that I probably annoyed her. I don't think you told me to shut up, but I know you thought it because <laughs> I just kept going on and on and on about it because it was so cool. I mean, I was like, to see these 2,000-year-old manuscripts, and I could go into my geekdom here, uh, it was just exhilarating. That's my point. It was exhilarating to me. And you want to know who was ready to leave first? It was not me. I'll give you a little secret. And, and while she enjoyed the exhibit, I was blown away by it. Why? Well, I knew more about the scrolls, and I have a far greater interest in ancient Hebrew writings. It, it mattered more to me. The priceless treasures that we saw evoked a stronger response from me because they meant more to me. The more we know Jesus and see him for the treasure that he is, the deeper and stronger our response to him will be. Look at Jesus and what do you see? You see the image of the invisible God. You see the creator of everything and everyone. You see the sustainer of the entire universe who upholds your life with a single heartbeat at a time, one heartbeat at a time. He is the greatest being in all the universe. He is, we could say, as we said last week, he's the crown jewel of the entire world, the entire universe. And here's the wonderful truth about Jesus. The more you know him, the deeper you study him, the longer you gaze at him, the more precious he becomes. Treasuring Jesus is a lifelong delight where you you see the facets of his brilliance and in response your heart grows more and more in love with him. That's what happens when you make Jesus the crown jewel of your life. And if Jesus is the crown jewel of your life, he will be preeminent. That's the word that the text uses in verse 18. He will be preeminent in your life. You will consider him to be of highest importance. You will surrender to him the greatest authority in your life. He is the one that your life is consumed with. So here's where it gets personal. Is Jesus the crown jewel of your life? It's really easy to say that, oh yeah, sure, he's preeminent. But practically speaking, as you look at your life and your decisions and your thought patterns and your habits, is Jesus truly the crown jewel? Christians who only think about Jesus on Sundays don't view him as the crown jewel of their life. Those who see no need to develop their relationship with Jesus, they're content with the depth that they have right now. They haven't made him their crown, they haven't made him their crown jewel. P. 
people who prize this world's goods and, and love the things of this life don't treasure Jesus. They don't. And I hope that doesn't describe you. Because the sad truth is this. Anything other than Jesus as the crown jewel of your life is, is like sterling silver or a cheap imitation stone. You can have a jewel that's in that place and there's only one jewel that can be the crown jewel of your life. You can have something else there, but it won't satisfy. It won't give you the purpose that you were made for. When you make Jesus the crown jewel of your life, you have found a pearl of great price, a treasure of unsurpassed value. As we study verses 18 through 20 today, we will see two truths about how Jesus is the crown jewel of the church. Jesus, verses 15 through 17, is the crown jewel of the creation of the universe. Verses 18 through 20, Jesus is the crown jewel of the church. And my plea to you that I've prayed for you this week is this. That yes, you would make Jesus the crown jewel of your life, but that you would commit to him and engage in a pursuit of him that redefines everything about you. And if you've already made that choice, that you would be encouraged and fortified and strengthened in that pursuit today. Because you can search high and low, near and far. You can spend the rest of your life pursuing something else to be your crown jewel, and you will never be satisfied. You will never find a treasure as beautiful and magnificent as the Lord Jesus. That's my prayer for you today. Verse 18 gives us the first truth about Jesus as the crown jewel of the church. First, he is the head of the body. Verse 18 says this, and he is the head of the body, the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Well, verse 18, as you see, opens with a metaphor. Jesus is the head of the body. Just like we all have heads on top of our bodies, Jesus is the head and the church is the rest of his body. I think we understand the analogy. Well, how is Jesus the head of the body? What makes him qualified to be the head of the body? There are two things here. First, Jesus founded the church, who is the beginning. The word beginning points to the formation of something. In other passages, it's used uh, to describe the founder of something. Jesus founded the church. He's the reason the church exists. He's the reason we are gathered here today. In the business world, the person who begins a company is the founder. And when they're the founder, they often take on other roles like founder and CEO. As the company expands, sometimes they give up other titles. Sometimes they, they have to transition their role. Sometimes they sell their company to someone else who takes it beyond and then they go and found a different company. Since Jesus founded the church, he has the position of head and he has not given up authority over his church to someone else. He is founder and CEO, if you want to use that analogy. He retains the authority that goes along with this position. So Jesus founded the church, but then Jesus also gives life to the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The main point of the phrase, the firstborn from the dead, is that Jesus rose from the dead. This is a key tenant, a key belief of Christian doctrine. 1 Corinthians 15 is a whole chapter of the Bible devoted to showing the importance of the resurrection of the dead. In fact, Paul goes on in that passage and talks about how if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is in vain. We are of all people most miserable, most to be pitied. Because we're believing a lie. We're believing a hoax. But the good news is that Jesus did rise from the dead. He is alive. And if he is a living head, that means that his body is alive also. 
Now let's go a level deeper on this phrase, the firstborn from the dead, because it's really interesting. The word firstborn is the same as in verse 15. If you look back at verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And here, just like in verse 15, it doesn't mean the first one in time. Jesus wasn't the first one to rise from the dead. There were other people that rose from the dead. If you go back to the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. Jesus, in his own ministry, raised at least three different people from the dead. So if Jesus isn't the first person in time to rise, what does it mean? Well, there are two answers to this question. First, Jesus is the first one in a new category of resurrection. And then second, Jesus is the preeminent one among all those who rise from the dead. Let's take those slowly. Jesus is the first one in a new category of resurrection. If you look at what the Bible says about resurrection being raised from the dead, the Bible tells us that there are two resurrections. Two resurrections. The resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto, can you guess it? To death. Believers rise as part of the first resurrection. They go to heaven. Unbelievers are raised and they end up in hell. The first resurrection unto life has multiple stages for believers. So if you look here at the diagram I've got on the screen, the red cross stands for Jesus' death on the cross. You got it. And there are at least five stages to this resurrection. Now, what do you notice about the very first stage? You notice that it's Jesus' resurrection. If you're taking notes, jot down 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. Because this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, calls Jesus' resurrection the first fruits. The first fruits. First fruits are the first part of the harvest, which signals something to the farmer. It signals that there is a crop that is about to bear fruit and be ready to harvest. Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits means that there is a harvest of resurrections to come. When Colossians 1.15 calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead, it's affirming this same truth, that Jesus is the first in a category. His resurrection begins the resurrection to life. Then there's a second truth here. Jesus is the preeminent one among those who rise from the dead. Well, who rises from the dead? Every single person rises from the dead. Every single person. Some will be raised to everlasting life. Some will be raised to everlasting punishment. Among everyone that rises from the dead, who is the greatest person? Well, Jesus was fully man, and he rose from the dead, which means he is the greatest person to rise from the dead. He is the firstborn, the preeminent one among those who rise from the dead. So here's the point. As the risen Christ, Jesus gives life to his church because he is the first one to rise and the greatest one to rise. Jesus is our very life. That's what Colossians 3, 4 says. So Jesus founded the church and gives life to the church. And this is how Jesus is 
the head of the church. So let's circle back to that main idea. Jesus is the head of the church. That metaphor communicates something. That metaphor communicates that Jesus is the most important part of the church, that he has the position of prominence. Just like your head has the position of prominence on your body, it'd be a little bit weird if I walked up to you and tried to uh, talk to your kneecap, or I looked only at your hand. No, we look at each other in the eyes. We talk to one another face to face. Jesus is the most prominent part of the church body. But he also has authority over the church body. Just as your head directs and controls the rest of your body, some of it voluntary, some of it involuntary, Jesus directs and controls his body, the church. Now, we use this same metaphor of headship in the political world. There are phrases, head of state and head of government. The head of state has largely a symbolic role and represents the nation to other countries. The head of government actually is the one who gets stuff done. They're the ones who runs the nation. And some nations separate these positions. In fact, a lot of nations in the world separate these positions. Uh, Great Britain has a head of state that is the king or the queen while the prime minister in Great Britain is the head of government. In the United States, the president possesses both roles. He represents the nation as the head of state, and he is also the one in charge. He's the head of government, at least of the executive branch. So when we refer to Jesus as the head of the body, he occupies both the head of state and the head of government positions. He unifies the church, and he represents us. But he also commands the church and runs it. That's why at the end of verse 18, Paul inserts a phrase here that has no parallel in this text. That in everything, that in all things, Jesus may have what? The preeminence. The preeminence. Jesus is supremely important. He occupies the highest position. He commands the greatest authority. And his preeminence over the church corporately means that he's in charge of the church. So if you were to come in and say, well, who's in charge of this church? It's not the pastoral staff. It's Jesus. This is his church. We are his body. What we do as pastors is simply obeying the text of Scripture to shepherd his people. We don't come and sit in our, 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 our meetings and say, now, what do we feel like doing this week in church? We look at the Scriptures and we study it and we say, oh, Jesus, our head, has already given us a mission, so let's fulfill it. He already told us to go make disciples, so that's what we're going to do. That's why our mission at Red Rocks is, say it with me, to know Christ and make him known. That, that's our mission. We didn't make that up because we thought it would be a good idea. We looked at Scripture and said that's what God calls us to do. I could go on with corporate applications, but let's shift to the personal for a moment. Jesus is preeminent over all creation and over the church. Is he preeminent in your life? What's the response to someone who is preeminent? It's submission. Submission is a dirty word in our culture. People who submit are either wrestling or they're crazy. That's what it is. But Jesus' position And Jesus' authority demands no other response. You can't say, well, I'll listen to you from 8 to 5, Lord Jesus. No, his lordship means that he is over all and you must submit to him. And yet there's great freedom in that. You are not the highest authority in your life. We are parenting three boys, seven and under. 
We are teaching them this truth. They are not the highest authority in their life. And I hope you're not in your 60s, 70s, or 80s still thinking that you're the highest authority in your life. You may think you are, but you're really not. When we think we're in charge, we are actually self-deceived. We're believing something that's not true. Jesus is in charge of the universe, remember? And guess who is is included in the universe? You and me. (laughs) We're part of his universe. So our battle, as in, in our battle against sin, is, is to submit and to recognize his authority over us. Because sin causes us to branch out on our own. It causes us to run away from his authority, to submit to our hearts and ourselves. And this battle for authority begins early. Just go work in the nursery. <laughs> You'll see it begins real early. Small children believe they're in charge, not mom or dad. Why do many teenagers have conflict with their parents? Because they want to be out from under their parents' authority. And sadly, many adults have never settled this issue, and so they're still fighting God's authority in their life. Christian maturity doesn't come unless you surrender your authority to Jesus. And it's not like this automatically happens, like you hit 18 and, okay, great, all my authority issues are solved. This is a, this is a choice to surrender your authority to Christ. You can tell who has surrendered authority to Jesus because they will set aside their preferences for scriptural principles. They will deny themselves to obey Christ. They will prioritize Christ's commands over their opinions. Many times those who refuse to serve others, not all the time, but many times those who refuse to serve others have not surrendered authority to Jesus. They can't lower themselves to serve others because they haven't lowered themselves under Jesus' authority. And I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, okay? I'm not upset with anyone. This isn't an ax that I'm grinding. I'm just telling you what the, the truth is. That if you come to church week after week and you sit in a pew and you receive ministry from, from the pastoral staff and you receive ministry from the choir and you receive ministry from your fellow members and you do nothing to lift your finger to help, you probably have an authority problem. Our church will not grow with unsurrendered members. You say, that's a, that's a strong opinion. Well, unsurrendered members means that we have elbows and knees and hips and lungs that are trying to act independently of the whole body. If your lung or your heart goes haywire, your whole body gets messed up. A unified body is one that is corporately submitted to Jesus. So why do people struggle to surrender their authority? We could probably have a whole sermon on this, this question. Two things that I... I want to put in front of you here. Why do people struggle to surrender their authority? Well, pride, definitely. (laughs) Pride. Pride says, I'm in charge of me. No one else can tell me what to do. I told my aunt when I was four or five, you're not the boss of me. And she still brings that up, you know, 30 years later. But deep down inside of us, we all have that you're not the boss of me feeling. We all have it. So we have a choice. Colossians 3 that we'll get to in a few weeks, a few months, says that we are to mortify or put to death that feeling, that enmity in us and surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus. Pride says, 
Why would I give up my authority? Fear also prevents people from surrendering authority in your life, in their life. Uh, maybe you've thought this. If I give up control to Jesus, he's going to send me to Africa. He's going to do something that just makes me go and give up everything to follow him. Wait a minute. <laughs> Isn't that what he called us to do in, in the Gospels? Is it the worst thing in the world to be 100% in the will of God and serving him with joy and peace? Sometimes we act like that's a bad thing. The reality is most people God is not going to send to the mission field. And if he does send you the mission field, it's not punishment. It's a privilege. And if you surrender to Jesus now, what's going to happen? He may make you to step outside your comfort zone. You may have to do something that you're afraid of doing. You may have to give up a little bit of the control of your life to someone else. But do you want to end up in heaven and God says to you, why didn't you do this? And you have to talk about fear when you're looking at the, the sovereign ancient of days. Fear can hold us back and restrict us from surrendering our authority. Yet the most freeing thing you can do today is to confront your fear and your pride and surrender that to Jesus, to submit to your head. That's what Jesus' preeminence demands. So Jesus is the crown jewel of the church because he is its head, but he's also the crown jewel of the church because he is the church's reconciler. And this is in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is the only reconciler. The key word here in these two verses is the word reconcile. What is reconciliation? Reconciliation is when fighting and hostility stop and fellowship is Restored. This particular word that's used here is only used in Christian writing, scripture, and early church fathers. It's not a secular concept because this is only possible through Jesus. Reconciliation results in peace and unity, which means it's not just a truce or a ceasefire, stop shooting at me. It actually means that enemies are transformed into friends. That's reconciliation. Well, how in the world could, could people who were once alienated and hostile in mind and enemies to God be part of his kingdom and be, part of, and be children of his? Jesus. Jesus. That's how. Jesus stood in the gap between God and people and reconciled, reconciled us together. In these two verses, there are three truths about Jesus as the only reconciler. First, he alone can mediate between God and man. Now, verse 19 uh, is a very difficult verse to translate uh, because the subject is left unstated. The grammar is just really weird. And so if you have a different translation than the New King James, you probably notice that it reads a little bit different. Uh, the New King James italicizes the Father to show that it's not in the original. So the translators have supplied God the Father as the subject. And according to this reading, that means God the Father took pleasure in Jesus because Jesus was fully God dwelling in a human body. That's definitely true. 
If you go to the gospel accounts and the baptism of Jesus, God the Father speaks, and what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Okay, so it's true. But the point that Paul is making here is slightly different. (laughs) One commentator paraphrased the verse this way, and I think it really brings out what Paul is trying to say. God, in all his fullness, has chosen to dwell in Christ. God, in all his fullness, has chosen to dwell in Christ. In other words, Jesus possesses all the fullness of deity. So why is this important? Because only Jesus is qualified to reconcile God and man. This teaching about Jesus' full deity and full humanity is known as the hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He is one person with two natures. And this is important because only a man could represent fellow men, fellow men and women, fellow humanity, fellow people. And yet only God could make an eternal offer of peace. Jesus is fully God. He is the fullness of God. We've seen his deity come up several times already in this text. But he is also fully man. He dwelled in a human body. That's referring to the incarnation where Jesus literally was robed in flesh. The fullness of God dwelled in human flesh. So Jesus alone can mediate between God and man. Letter B, he reconciled all things. And that's the extent of Jesus' work. Verse 20, I don't know if it it stuck out to you, but it sounds a whole lot like verse 16, doesn't it? Things on earth and things in heaven. That means that all things are reconciled to God through Christ. Now, there's a little phrase in verse 20 that says, to reconcile all things to himself. Scripture teaches us in other places that the world is reconciled back to God, 2 Corinthians 5. But here it shows us that the world is reconciled to Jesus, I think, again, this is showing us that Jesus is truly God. It's not like at the end of time, God and Jesus are going to have an arm wrestling match, if I can say this without being blasphemous. They're not going to have a a roll of the dice to figure out who gets the world. it's, It's God's world. Jesus reconciled it to himself. And what did he reconcile? Well, what this verse is teaching is really incredible. Because, yes, he reconciled humanity, but it says all things. Jesus not only reconciles mankind back to God, he reconciles the entire universe back to God. You say, well, why? Why would the universe need to be reconciled to its creator? Well, because of the fall. When man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned, God placed the world under a curse. Romans 8, 18 through 26 talks about the creation itself groans with an eager longing, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. How will the curse be lifted? It's through Jesus. And what will be affected? Everything. So, let me put it this way. If the universe is not reconciled back to God, we would be perfect people in the new heavens and new earth living in the same old earth. It wouldn't really be the new heavens and new earth. But because of Jesus, all things are made new. And his promise in Revelation 21 rings out for all eternity, I am making all things new. Anything estranged from God 
and under the curse is reconciled to God through Jesus. Well, how did he accomplish this reconciliation? The end of the verse says this, he made peace through the blood of his cross. Reconciliation can only take place when peace is made. And I mentioned a moment ago, but this peace is not just a ceasefire where opposing armies stop shooting at each other for a period of time. Peace can only happen when hostility stops. That's why there will never be peace in the Middle East. Because the hostility will never go away until Jesus comes back. The Middle East may have ceasefires and even treaties, which is good, but as long as hostility remains, lasting peace is impossible. Not so with God and mankind. There is peace between us because Jesus has made peace through the blood of his cross. On the cross, the God-man bled and died. And the shedding of his blood means that sins are atoned for. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9. In other words, Jesus negotiated the terms of peace for you by shedding his precious blood. He paid the price to bring humanity back to God. And this is remarkable for, for many reasons, but think about this. When two nations are fighting against one another, who is, which side sues for peace? It's the losing side. The losing side says to the side that's winning, let's, let's make peace before we lose everything and we have to unconditionally surrender. Well, who is the one who initiates the peace process between God and man? It's the winning side. God comes and says, I love the world so much that I'm going to send Jesus to die for it. John 3, 16. God sent Jesus to hostile territory to bring rebels back to God. And he made peace for you and I by absorbing our punishment, our just deserved punishment for sin. And the result is that peace is won. So now we have a choice. You can either accept Jesus' terms for peace or you can continue to fight a losing battle against God. That's your choice. And so I, I appeal to you. There are many people here I don't know. I don't know your heart. Even if I do know you, I still don't know your heart. And what your response must be is very simply, simple. Accept Jesus' terms of peace. Every human who desires to be reconciled to God must come through Jesus. There is no other way to be at peace with God. Church attendance can't help you. Good works can't help you. Only Jesus can reconcile you. Most people stumble over this because they believe something. They believe that God is favorable toward them just the way they are. Oh yeah, God's not a bad guy. He's, he's gonna be kind to me. You know, he'll, At the end of time, he'll, he'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, we'll make it up. That's, that's the total wrong way to think about this because the Bible paints a completely different picture. As the next three verses show, you and I as people are enemies to God, hostile to him, rebelling against his rule. That means that we are alienated from him. There's no way we can get back to him. You can't waltz into God's presence and assume that he'll just accept you. Oh, hey there. That would be like us as Americans waltzing into North Korea and expecting to be treated well. It's not going to happen. So why do we think the same thing about God? For you to be accepted into God's presence, you need someone to go to God and negotiate terms for your peaceful surrender so that you can be received into God's kingdom and accepted as, as his subject. 
And that's exactly what Jesus did. You must lay down your weapons of hostility and come to God through Jesus. You must receive Jesus as Savior. And if you've already received Christ and been reconciled to God, the response is one of rejoicing. Tell me the old, old story. Rehearse these gospel truths over and over again to exalt Jesus in our minds because our thoughts about Jesus must be worthy of him. We demean him when we don't think of him as preeminent like he is. Our fallen minds pull Jesus down to our level and and in our minds his majesty is tarnished. We think less of him than scripture teaches. Seeing him glorious and high and lifted up on the cross humbles us and reminds us to keep his rightful place of preeminence clear in our minds. Because there's one Lord of the universe, there is one Lord of your life, and it's Jesus. And that's exactly what the the Lord's table does. It reminds us, the Lord's table that we're about to celebrate here confronts us with the gospel. It confronts us with the good news that Jesus' death made peace. And if you've not accepted him, then you have no reason to celebrate but you can be saved. Today is the day of salvation. If you have received Jesus, we stand firm in the gospel declaration of Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who else could have made peace? Who else could have represented humanity? Who else could have unified everything in creation? Who But Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the creator and the sustainer of everything, the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. Does he have the preeminence in your life? Let's bow in prayer together. Father in heaven, it's good for us to see Christ exalted because it confronts us with our lowliness and our need, and what a merciful God he is, you are, to send Jesus to die for us. As we now transition and observe the Lord's table, may you be pleased in our our reflections, may we deal with sin and repent and receive forgiveness and grace to walk this week glorifying our Savior, and it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.